The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about finding a balance between the individual's rights and privacy and the common good. And I was just reading an article recently in the Daily Journal called A Band of Little Brothers, the Privacy Merchants. And this is by Amitai Etzioni, who is a professor. And I ended up getting his book, The New Normal, which the subtitle is Ending a Balance Between Individual Rights and the Common Good by Amitai Etzioni. And let me tell you a little bit about his background. It's fascinating. Amita Etzioni is a university professor and professor of international relations at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He served as a senior advisor at the Carter White House and taught at Columbia University, Harvard Business School, and the University of California at Berkeley. A study by Richard Posner ranked him among the top 100 American intellectuals. He is the author of numerous op-ed pieces, and his voice is frequently heard in the media, and we're lucky to have him. He's the author of many books, including The Act of Society, The Moral Dimension, Security First, The New Golden Rule, Hotspots, and My Brother's Keeper. And then, of course, his most recent book that came out in November of 2014 is The New Normal, Finding a Balance Between Individual Rights and the Common Good. So thank you so much, Amitai, for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be with you. So why is it that you wrote this book? Well, I believe that we are uh, facing... Uh, a multiple phase uh, crisis, which will not allow us to go back to the kind of life uh, many of us aspire to, and in effect used to have, and that is uh, the kind of American dream and tradition was that uh, each generation uh, makes more money, is more affluent than the previous one, and we get ever more. Uh, uh, wealth and affluence, and the good life is considered one in which people have uh, more uh, goods. And the recent recession uh, showed us uh, that we may not be able to return to such a life. Moreover, 
I'm not even sure that if we could, that we should, because uh, uh, once you reach a certain level of income, uh, finds uh, finds that additional income really adds very little uh, to our uh, uh, happiness and contentment. The other dimension in the book kind of has two halves. The question of what we do if we have to lead a more moderate life. The other half this is the question that I believe you're going to face at least for the next 30 years. Uh, new uh, attacks of terrorists. And the question is how far can we go in providing security without undermining our basic rights. So these are the two new normals. Uh, less affluence, unfortunately more need for security. Right, right. So in, in this article that I read, you talked about uh, commercial enterprises and you talked about the fact that we have, they're a band of little brothers. Um, what do you mean by this, that they are a man, band of little brothers? When well, people talk about privacy, they almost automatically bring up the term the, term, the big brother. Right. Uh, which is kind of a shorthand for the government. Mm-hmm. And in effect, uh, there's no question that the thing we have to worry most about is intrusion and surveillance by uh, the government. In effect, uh, I'm not sure everybody's completely aware of that. When we talk about rights, which is so important to us, uh, rights are rights against the government. We have very few rights in that legal sense uh, against anybody else. But what happened over the last decades, especially over the last five, ten years, is that privacy has been increasingly violated not by the government, but uh, by uh, corporations. And there are two ways this is done. One is kind of a small key. Uh, Practically every corporation uh, keeps information quite detailed information about its customers, and they use that uh, in order to pitch advertising to them uh, and allegedly in order to uh, serve them better. But uh, in addition, there are a very small number of corporations, which are called the, the privacy merchants, who that's all they do. They collect information about all of us. They have a dossier... Uh, like a folder on practically every American, and they they have maybe 1,500 details about you, uh, including practically everything about you, what you purchased, uh, uh, where you you go for vacation, uh, who are your friends, uh, even what are your religion, what did you vote for, and so on and so on. And then they sell that to anybody who will give them a fee. And they, if the FBI would have done that, if the FBI would have a, a dossier or folder on, uh, let's say, 200 million Americans, all innocent people, and such detailed information about them, I think we all go berserk. Uh, it's done very routinely by private corporations. Now, I think quite a few people understand that. What practically nobody knows, and I point out a lot of details in my book, The New Normal, what practically nobody knows that these corporations also sell that information to the government. And that, of course, means that uh, 
they uh, uh, sell it to the FBI, they sell it to the Federal Revenue, and as a result, uh, there's really no longer difference whether the FBI keeps a dossier on you or whether it is a private corporation. Yes, and, and, you know, the U.S. Privacy Act that was from the, I think, 1973-1974 says that the government shall not have these private databases, but instead Axiom, which is one of the large ones um, that, you know, and other uh, data brokers that you call privacy merchants, all of these information brokers, you're right, they are selling to the government. Because the U.S. Privacy Act only included governmental agencies instead of also including, um, you know, the the protection. It did not include the protection of our data with regard to commercial entities. You're absolutely right. That's exactly the issue. In general, we have that uh, uh, narrative that the government is the uh, source of all our problems, and the private sector is, is fine, is, they, they do all the good things. But uh, this distinction completely disappears. Right. If the private sector sells information to the government uh, kind of at night without us knowing, without being informed. So the difference between the FBI having a data on everybody, and as you say correctly, action, selling it to the government, is one click and one paycheck. Yes. So uh, that's what we, we need to understand. And you could very correctly point out that the 1974 Act and all that followed only limits the government, but not the private sector. Yeah. I think at the time, if I remember correctly from history, that, that there was an argument that commercial entities should be included in terms of protection, protecting this uh, the private information. But that got uh, thrown out, and it was just the government. But the government can get into anything. I mean, we know that the government has been collecting information from all of the telecommunications companies, AT&T, Verizon, everyone, right? But that's a very, actually, that's a different story. Yeah. Uh, what they're collecting from the telephone companies uh, is uh, who called whom right, and how long they talked. Right. But not the content of the conversations. But that's, first of all, there's a great confusion among these two issues. Uh, this is like being able to see the envelope of a letter, but not a letter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Second, this information then is cataloged, but if the NSA, which does that, wants to query any individual record in that folder, they have to first go to the judge and show they have cause mm-hmm. to uh, investigate that particular record. And there, you see, we get into the, back to the issue of balance. I know that a lot of people have been jumping all over the NSA for doing that, but uh, I, I find it actually relatively easy to show uh, that this one, if it's done as promised, if it's done as promised, uh, actually is quite defensible. The question is, and that's a whole other issue, that we need more oversight and more accountability of the government agencies who do these things. Yes. Assuming that they live up to what they say they do, that they keep only the envelopes, only the who called whom, and that uh, they can use it for, to track a person only with 
the court permission, that seems to me uh, a system which can be justified. Yeah. Now, are you talking about the FISA court that gives the permission for them to go further? Uh, that's right. But the FISA court uh, allows uh, the general setup. Uh-huh. Because there are two questions. Uh, should they be allowed to do that? And should they be allowed to track an individual? Yeah. But the only concern with the FISA court is that you only have the government presenting to to the court, and there's no one presenting on behalf of privacy. <laughs> so we don't have the same kind of balance that you have, um, you know, in, in terms of getting that kind of a warrant that there that that everything is kind of done in secret because it's basically a secret court. Well, that's very fair, but it's also true that it's dealing with terrorists. Right. So uh, assuming that you have information uh, that somebody from, I don't care, from Saudi Arabia is calling somebody in Irvine, California, uh, and uh, they keep exchanging messages, and uh, somebody uh, now wants to know who is that person in California who keeps calling Saudi Arabia, and they have some other reason to suspect that person may be cooperating with the terrorists. Now, you go to court and have an open hearing that that person is represented, you're to tip off the terrorists. Oh, of course. You've got to have a private court. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, when dealing with terrorists, we cannot follow all the steps we follow for other uh, criminals. And there's a very particular reason here. With criminals, we, we can, it's okay we catch them after they act, you haul them into court. If they're found guilty, we jail them, punish them. And presumably that punishment deters other criminals and they are off the street. When you come to terrorists, many of them commit suicide. What do you do to terrorists after you committed suicide, as they did on 9-11? You can't bring them to court. Right. You can't deter terrorists by saying, if you do that, we'll jail you for 10 years. They don't, yeah, they don't care. Right. They're, they're, they're exactly. Hmm. And so... Uh, unfortunately, and, and it would be much better if you could deal with terrorists as if they were garden variety criminals, but because uh, of that willingness to commit suicide, mm-hmm. there's a second and last reason uh, why we have to deal with terrorists differently and, frankly, granting them less rights. And that is, it, with terrorism, our number one purpose is not to punish, is to prevent the attack in the first place. Yes. So we don't. We can't wait till it first happens, and, and that's why we have to. Uh, sadly, tragically, but in my judgment, cannot avoid uh, here the balance between rights and the common good is somewhat different than dealing with uh, with killers or even rapists. Yeah, and that that gets back to that whole balance between privacy and freedom versus security. Mm-hmm. And that that seems to be a very precarious balance, doesn't it? Well, uh, yes, uh, but I think the best way to think about it is like this. Uh, we face two very, very, very important challenges, yes. claims. One is our rights. That's what we're all about. That's what makes us Americans, that's what makes us different from all these other societies and in many parts of the world, from China to Africa, from Iran to Vietnam to to Venezuela. That's what we're proud about. 
Second, we, are, we need to be concerned with our security. And so the conversation for me starts with assuming that we have two conflicting interests. None of them uh, trumps or bumps off the other. And the, the real question is not, should we worry about security? Should we worry about rights? The real question is, how we decide when we go too far in one direction or the other. And we can go too far in both directions. Because before 9-11, because historically the CIA and the FBI committed all kind of uh, violations of our rights, the, the Church Commission, Committee and other congressional acts imposed all kind of limits on what the FBI could do. And as a result, Despite the fact that we had a lot of information about those 19 terrorists who attacked us on 9-11, people were afraid to act because they did not want to violate the regulations. Mm. And so uh, we, we can err in both directions. And the real challenge is not to say, forget about one or the other, but to find how we decide in each situation where, where, what direction should be tilt. Yes. Yeah. It's that balance. Well, how about with the press? You know, we've seen that the press has revealed some of the state secrets that we've seen. Um, how do you feel about that with the with the press's right? You know, that's our First Amendment right, right? The freedom of the press. How well, does so that happy work? you ask that question. Uh, frankly, I think the best chapter in my book, uh, The New Normal, is about that question, about the freedom of the press. So uh, let, let me give you some examples so we have something to think about. Okay. Uh, during World War II, uh, a newspaper published the following story, that uh, the Japanese were dropping what's called depth charges to sink our submarines. Uh, they're like bombs which you throw into the water and they slowly sink and they explode when they come next to the submarines. But they had set wrong the depth charges, so they keep exploding too shallow before they hit our submarines. Mm. Uh, the Tribune in Chicago published this information. The uh, Japanese read about it. They fixed their bombs. And the next week, they sunk 10 of our submarines. Yes. Mm. Okay. Uh, next, uh, a newspaper published the name of the head of the CIA station in Athens. Uh, some uh, communists went and shot him dead the next day. Uh, another newspaper published detailed designs how to make small nuclear weapons. Uh, my, my most uh, troubling example, actually, is a very re recent one. Until uh, a few months ago, most people in the world, uh, and I have to know that quite assuredly, uh, even people are very, very knowledgeable and sophisticated about these things, assume that, I bet you do, that if your computer is not connected to anything, and you don't change thumbnails uh, uh, or, or drives or anything, yeah. That, that that information is protected, right? You would think if it's not connected at all to the Internet or anything that, that it, it okay. you and would that's, think that's that, right? The, uh, Iran kept their real, real information about the nuclear weapons because, like everybody else assumed, not connected, that's it. Well, it turns out the CIA found a way to tap into computers which are not connected to anything. That was published in the newspapers. I think they did huge damage to our security because now we'll not be able anymore to keep eyes on Iran. 
And I would not be surprised if leaking that information will not end up going to war, because now we no longer can be sure. Uh, up to that point, you could tap on how close is Iran to nuclear weapons. Do we have to act or not? Now we no longer can be sure. Mm. So it, it, there There's are dangers and, yeah, the repercussions and the ramifications can be horrendous if state secrets are let out, you're saying. Yeah. Right. Now, now there are stories which go the other way. The government mucked up and just classify things because they're embarrassing and not because publishing would damage uh, our security. And they tried to prevent newspapers from publishing, not because of security, but so the government will not be embarrassed. So the question then arises, how we decide when there is a serious harm to our security and when it's just the government is trying to protect itself from embarrassment. The current system assumes that the editors of a newspaper will make that decision. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of trouble with that because today editors is no longer very responsible necessarily the head of the New York Times, the head of the Washington Post, and such, the Los Angeles Times. Uh, today, anybody, any blogger can say they're a publisher, they're an editor. Right, right. <laughs> I so, mean, the Internet is, is journalism, right? right? Exactly. So any, all barriers to publications uh, are, are, in effect, uh, gone. And you really have to revisit that question. Uh, but is, is that a good balance? That any editor can decide what to publish. Senator Feinstein says that should be a permission only, quote, real journalists should be able to do that. Well, how do you define real journalism? Yeah, right. Journalism, there's no license for journalism. Right. So and, I know, and I happen to know a lot of journalists who were top journalists for the Washington Post or the New York Times who actually now just do blogging. You know, they have their own blogging. They don't even work for the for these big companies anymore because they were stifled. So how do you, how you, how do you determine what is a real journalist? Right, and then you go to the National Enquirer, right, or the New York Post. Uh, so you have all kind of much less responsible publishers, editors, journalists, and so we need to revisit that question. Well, what do you think about the Edward Snowden? What do you think about that? All oh, those revelations. It's known, of course, caused huge damage, huge damage to our security. And he claims that he was a, he's a whistleblower. Uh, but here is the test. If you find that something, you work for our security, you find that people are doing something which is wrong, then you go to your supervisor and say, look, this is uh, inappropriate or illegal or immoral. Mm -hmm. He doesn't listen to you. You go to his supervisor, he doesn't listen to you, to your, you go to Congress, and they don't listen to you. Then you go to the press. But uh, to, then you showed that you tried to work within the system. You're not just out there to damage American security. But if all else fails, you may want to go to the media. But what Snowden did uh, is uh, he did not do any of the above. He did not try to fix the system on the inside, and he just revealed one thing after the other. Without that, uh, is anything inappropriate about most of what he revealed? Uh, maybe he wasn't very smart 
to listen to the personal cell phone of the head of the German government. At first of all, there was nothing illegal about it. Uh, in general, most of what he reveals is just cause huge remittance security without any reason uh, to argue that the government was doing anything inappropriate. Hmm. We are speaking with... Amitai Etzioni, who is a professor of uh, international relations at George Washington University, and he is the author of this new book that I've been reading called The New Normal, Finding a Balance Between Individual Rights and the Common Good. So, Amitai, tell me, what do you think about privacy? Is it dead? Where are we going with privacy when you've got these challenges with security and uh, terrorism and all of this, is, is privacy gone? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I really uh, have a very unconventional, I must admit, uh, view of this subject. Uh, I, I think privacy is better protected today than it ever was. And let me show you why. Uh, go back to the paper age, and let's assume there was some medical information about you. Let's say you you have HIV, and it's in your doctor's office in a folder. How was it protected? The lock and the key. Uh, anybody with a, a screwdriver could open the folder. When they when they mailed it, it was mailed by by uh, post office, by uh, uh, fax machine, completely insecure. Today, if it's properly encrypted, is the government may, uh, if it's NSA computers, may or may not be able to break it. But uh, most people will be unable to read it, both when you email it and when it's uh, uh, locked in a proper computer. Uh, a password is a much better protection than a lock ever was or a sealed envelope. The FBI would uh, regularly steam open envelopes, read letters, and re-seal them. Uh, today... Uh, they cannot do that unless uh, they have uh, a court order. So, in effect, uh, from as far as the government is concerned, uh, and as far as communication, routine communication between people and routine storage information, in effect, uh, privacy is, so encryption is better protected uh, than it ever uh, was. On the other hand, there is this, what we talked about earlier, these uh, data banks, uh, clouds and such, uh, which, of course, contain much more information about us than ever, uh, and uh, there uh, indeed uh, some new trouble arises. So what do you think about Amazon and Google and Facebook? Would you put them into the similar category as the uh, information brokers? No, because I, uh, uh, Congress, and I very much agree with that, distinguish between different kinds of information according to how sensitive that information is. So, for instance, uh, we, uh, since 2000, we have laws which protect medical privacy. Uh, you will not find on Amazon, Google, or Facebook uh, medical information. We have laws protecting financial privacy. The, on the other hand, when it comes to consumer goods, uh, we consider that uh, insensitive information, and we it's safe. Somebody wants to keep track 
or what kind of yogurt you buy or what kind of loaf of bread, that's okay. And I recently suggested that we need a law now which prohibits using insensitive information to divine sensitive information because you can use insensitive information to find out the things you're not supposed to find out. But by and large, uh, we have extra protection for HIV. So we, th that ranking of information is not perfect and needs to be completed. But we're at the beginning of the correct approach that we allow Google and Facebook and such to collect information which we willingly release and uh, which is insensitive. And we have laws which ban collection of sensitive information. Well, we are just out of time, Amitai. Thank you so much. He is the author of The New Normal, Finding a Balance Between Individual Rights and the Common Good, Amitai Etzione. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have you back again. I appreciate your very, very fine question. Okay, thank you very much, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. In the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.